0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild slash donate. This podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia believes in uplifting individuals and organizations that work to transform our ecological, cultural, and spiritual relationships with each other and our common home. We thank Calliopeia for their ongoing support of creative projects that we believe in. To learn more, visit calliopeia.org. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we'll be sharing a special edition episode from our time at Jackson Wild Summit, an annual convergence of filmmakers, conservationists, scientists, and innovators exploring critical conservation and environmental issues. As one of many voices for independent media working within these realms, For the Wild has always sought to creatively push the boundaries between storytelling, media strategy, and conservation. That is, how can we hold space for the emergent narratives of the Anthropocene in their full complexity to find their way to the surface? How do we inspire people to stand up for the places they love and translate care into meaningful action? Wielding the tools of storytelling, however, also requires an honest acknowledgement of their power, a reminder that the stories we tell about people in place don't just inform the future from afar, they become the future they define the boundaries of what is possible. Thus, the question of who has access to big media and who sits behind the camera are urgent matters of justice. What we hold to be true is that communities must have the space and resources to tell their own stories and take leadership in designing our earthly futures. This isn't just a matter of truth, but rather a deep knowing that we all suffer when the voices of others are silenced and our solutions do not include the diversity of brilliance that we desperately need for radical global change. Today, we speak with seven storytellers who are shifting the landscape of conservation from behind their cameras and bold new media strategies. We hope these conversations spark your investigative curiosity to dig deeper into their stories of survival and renewal of life, land, and water. To kick off our Jackson Wild episode, we'll be speaking with Tiffany McNeil, an award-winning filmmaker and new media strategist who currently works as a creative director and innovations lead for CBS. Tiffany is committed to expanding narrative both in the stories we tell as filmmakers, the way we tell them, and how we distribute them. Hey y'all, it's Jackson Wild. We are here with the magnificent Tiffany McNeil. We're so excited to be speaking with her right now. And Tiffany, we had an incredible meeting. It felt kind of cosmic, mm-hmm. synchronistic, meeting each other in the big hall. And the more that I was able to speak with you and saw this internal strategy that you have around getting yourself into spaces where you can really shift the narrative, mm-hmm. it was so powerful to hear Thank your you. story. And I would love just to open up with, Hearing a bit about your story, like with your mother and then how you got to where you got and why you wanted to follow this particular path of media and strategy.
1: Sure. Yeah. A lot of people ask me how I got here or if I have the beliefs that I do because I've been like exposed to a lot of things or because I've had a roadmap. And the answer is no, there is no roadmap for people who look like me. So you talked about my mother and this is a great place to start. So my mom, she always gave me permission to take up space to take up full space, to take up my full space. I could ask questions. I could do whatever I wanted to do, but I had to do it and take up my full space. So when I looked at media, when I you know, when I read stories in books, often I didn't see myself reflected. When I thought about how I wanted to explore, when I saw people who were exploring, they all looked the same, sound the same, old, white, male, with an accent. <laughs> and so I never heard, like... The voices that sounded like my mother or my grandmother or the places where I lived or the people who I loved or, or myself. So I decided that I was going to get into media, and at first I thought I'd be a writer, but my life just changed. Uh, so I went to grad school, I took a class with some documentary filmmakers, and they showed me this movie War Dance. And when I saw what a documentary could be, which is artistic and creative and honest, I decided I wanted to make those. So I've been doing that ever since. I've done it in music. I've done it in fashion. But what I really focus on now are like really human stories mm-hmm. that expand the narrative, any narrative, um, and give us a better view of what this world looks like. Because mm-hmm. it's not just white. It's mm-hmm. not old. It's not just British.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But what led you into conservation documentation or ecological documentation? Like what, what made you come into this sector of media?
1: I didn't feel that I had a choice because for me it was about figuring out how me and my people could survive. And so that means talking about like the black body and experiences and and how we've gotten here. It means talking about the environment and our connection with the environment and how it's been severed and how we can reconnect it. It means listening to native people who understand that better than a lot of us do. And so when I thought about helping my voice be heard and other people's voices be heard, I understood that it can't be separate from conserving or protecting the environment and the people who live there. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got here. But most of my work is actually focused on people. And that's not removed from nature, right? That's not removed from conservation and nature. None of us are removed. And I think that what's super interesting is a lot of the time, especially in spaces like this or at Jackson Wild, and and all of the films are like very similar, and if you came here 10 years ago, they were similar to the ones you see here now. Everybody cares so much about how we protect the landscape or how we protect the animals there, but they don't talk about the people. There is no way on the planet to save an area to protect a species of animal or a species of plant if you do not care about the people. If the people are desperate, if the people have a poor life trajectory, if the people do not have a way to sustain themselves, if you do not care about that, if you do not care about the people being healthy, there is no way to continue to protect the planet because people are going to do what they have to do to survive.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And the years that I've spent doing interviews with For the Wild, the people aspect is so left out of the conservation equation a lot of the time. And I think it's really fascinating how we still have this dominant colonial conservation Mm -hmm. methodology that is used in media it's used in conservation projects and i am really interested to hear how you see yourself and others breaking this pattern of colonial conservation not just in media but in other projects because i agree if there are people that are desperate and you're trying to conserve an elephant or a tiger There's not enough people to protect that tiger if people are desperate enough because they're starving to death, Mm -hmm. or if their water isn't clean enough because it's been polluted by some multinational corporation, and now, oh, we're only saving the clean water for these creatures over here, but these other folks have to somehow tend for themselves. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thought to not be able to see the intersectionality in all of those moving pieces. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to dive a little bit deeper into colonial conservation and, and how you see the movement starting to shift that, or if you don't see the movement starting to shift that, that's one thing, and how could we get there?
1: I think one of the most radical things that I ever do is just take up space in places like this. Me just being here is radical as hell. Ayana, the other Ayana, just being here is radical as hell. And so part of it is showing up and doing what my mom taught me, which is taking up my full space. Once you've done that, then you have to ask yourself what you do with that space, right? Who else you welcome into the space? How do you tell a story in that space? And it's something that I think about a lot, a lot. And so part of it is whose stories I share my platform with because I I have developed one now. It could be bigger. It can always be bigger. But who do you pull into the space with you? And that's part of, of enacting the change. But the other thing is listening in a new way. So for example, When I was working at National Geographic, they had this climate change initiative and they were trying to figure out how to talk about climate change in a way that was like people would listen to because they were like, people are tired of climate change is depressing. (laughs) All anybody talks about Mm -hmm. is like polar bears dying and like ice caps melting is depressing. And one of the the things that someone said in a meeting when I said, like, well, we need more diverse voices in this conversation, they said, well, black people don't care about climate change. And I heard that. And I knew that that wasn't true. Internally, I knew that that wasn't true. But even I, in that moment, did not know how to respond to that. So I left that meeting feeling horrible. And I was like, people cannot like, believe this. This can't be something that people believe. So I Googled it, right? And this is like three years ago. And before I fill out the whole thing, you know how Google will like, auto-populate your question? I put in black people don't care about, and I put in a C and climate change oh. came up immediately. So it means that it's something that people thought was true. So then I sat there and I asked myself, why would people believe that? And I also asked myself a hard question, which is, do black people care about climate change? Of course we do. Of course we do. There's no way for somebody who's affected way more by something than somebody else, exponentially more, to not care about it. If you're brown, you're affected by climate change more than if you're white. If you're a woman, you're affected more than if you're a man. If you are elderly, you're affected more than if you're young. If you are poor or underserved, you're affected more than if you have money. So you can't afford to not care? So then it was, why do people think that we don't care? And it's because we're only talking about it from this super, it's like an academic, very white, privileged way of talking about it. If you've never seen a polar bear in real life, but your kid has asthma like five times more than kids that are like just a few miles away, you're not going to be worried about polar bears and talking about polar bears drowning. You're going to be worried about your kid and your child and how they have asthma. And when you talk about that, you're talking about climate change. When you talk about the immigration crisis and how part of it is due to, like, fighting over resources because the resources are so scarce, you're talking about climate change. So there are people talking about climate change in a way that's a one-to-one ratio problem to them, and it's not this weird academic or, like, super, like, headspace of environmental, the ice caps are melting, but it doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. And if we want to invite everybody into the conversation... We have to talk about it in a way that makes sense to them. And we have to remind them that it's not that people don't care about it. It's that they care about all these other aspects of it that are so important that you don't care about because you haven't placed value on these people like you place value on a polar bear.
0: Yeah, I absolutely see that. And I think, too, most people can't do anything about polar bear conservation. Mm -mm. And so when we're talking about these horrific true things that are happening, these facts of what's happening to the other creatures somewhere halfway across the world, we expect people to care about that. I don't think it's that people don't care, but how are they actually going to impact polar bears when they are dealing with a, an incinerator in their neighborhood, mm-hmm. when they're dealing with toxic spills coming into their waterways where they used to drink from? Mm-hmm. So I agree that when we try to put so much pressure on people to care about things that are so far from their reality, they don't have the resources or the energy to put impact into that, or even the connections that they do in their own neighborhoods. And I think there's that balance of global and local. So I do think what you're doing is revolutionary and being here feels, it feels so much more full. It feels like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. We're really talking about these intersections that when they're left out of the story, we are never going to get where any of us wanna get. Because we're not actually looking at the expansiveness of the narrative. We're picking one little compartment and trying to reduce everything into that compartment. But clearly it's not working or else we wouldn't be in the place that we're in today. Mm -hmm. So um, I really appreciate that. And I do now want to talk a little bit about the creativity that you mentioned before. Because you were saying to me, like, yeah, I do weird stuff. Like, yeah, I I push these creative (laughs) envelopes. And I love hearing that because you do work in a lot of, I would say, conventional spaces. Mm -hmm. And to see you and your personality and your creativity coming into these spaces, pushing the boundaries of what people or these organizations are putting out there, it's really exciting for me. So I want to hear a little bit more about your own creativity, your own projects, and what are the ways you see these larger organizations being able to be pushed and molded to something that feels more relevant to today's issues?
1: Sure. So what's interesting about me, and people have, like, come up to me before and thought that maybe it meant that, like, I wasn't as invested in moving my people along as they were because they're doing grassroots stuff. And I've always worked for large media companies—HBO, National Geographic, CNN, HuffPost, CBS now. I think that that is wildly untrue because I think all of it's important, right? We need people in every single space. We need people in the spaces where big media is, where big media holds the key to whose voice gets to be heard. I get to, like, not sneak people in the back door, but open the front door and let them walk in, because that's how we should be doing this. We should all be walking in the front door. We should all be pulling up chairs to the same table. And so that's the route that I took. It's not the route that everybody has to take, but each space is important. We need somebody in each space. I want to make space. All of this for me is about making space, and there are lots of ways to make space. You can make space by moving somebody else out away from the table, by deleting somebody else. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not telling other people they cannot make media the way that they've been making it. I'm saying there's enough room at this table for me to be there too. And I'm not just making room for myself. I don't want people to tell stories the way that I do either. I'm telling stories in these radical ways because hopefully it makes so much room that other people can come tell stories in their own way. I'm saying there's enough room at this table for everyone. And if there's not, we need to make it because any questions we've been asking to the people we've been asking them, we've gotten those answers. And maybe the reason that we're stalled, we're not able to figure out solutions to these problems is because we keep asking the same people, is because we keep talking about it the same way. And it's not enough for me to just be able to talk about it my way. Everybody has to be able to talk about it their way. That's how we get a fuller picture. That's how we expand the narrative. And that's what I'm really hoping that we're able to do.
0: Next, I sat down with Dr. Ayanna Flewellen, a black feminist, an archaeologist, a storyteller, and an artist. She is the co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists and sits on the board of Diving with a Purpose. So... I think just to begin, it would be great for you to give us a brief overview of your work with Diving with a Purpose Mm -hmm. and the Society for Black Archaeologists. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to leave it really broad and let you just give us a sense of your work, what these two organizations are up to, and then we can go from there and get deeper into both of those
3: pieces. Definitely. Diving with a Purpose is a nonprofit organization dedicated to maritime heritage conservation and oceanic conservation worldwide. We're here at Jackson Hole really promoting the work that we're doing in collaboration with a number of different organizations really looking for ships involved in the transatlantic slave trade that wrecked off the coast of Africa, so work in Mozambique, Senegal, South Africa, throughout the Caribbean as well, and I'm specifically working on a project in St. Croix with Diving with a Purpose. In addition to Diving with a Purpose, I'm a co-founder and vice president of the Society of Black Archaeologists. We were founded in 2011 as a nonprofit really dedicated to the preservation and conservation of African diasporic material culture worldwide. And we have about 200 different scholars who are both doing work in academia as well as cultural resource management throughout North, South, Central America, throughout the Caribbean as well, and on the continent of Africa.
0: <laughs> wow, your work is so deep and so important. I remember when I caught some of the panel that you were on, Mm -hmm. just in terms of black archaeologists, just how almost ignored that whole sector of people have been. And you were kind of discussing how black archaeologists have been relegated to certain realms Mm -hmm. and haven't been Mm -hmm. able to bring their full talents to the table. So I would love to hear just a little bit about how you all have been able to push the boundaries of this very white science, you know, and be able to stand in your power and say, no, there is a space for us and our work is important. And so just a little bit about your experience with that and even the societies and and what you're doing to change the narrative and really shift perspectives on this science that has really been pretty siloed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that
3: question archaeology, especially here in North America, really is an offshoot of anthropology, which has deep, deep ties to colonialism and the colonial project of really just viewing and dissecting others, right? And archaeology really, its foundation here in North America, especially with the decimation and desecration of Native American burial grounds, that's really what the foundation is in this country. So doing the work of really saying, hey, We're asking different questions of our past, and we're doing that in really innovative ways. So for a lot of the members of the Society of Black Archaeologists, one of our core sort of values is community collaborative research and really placing community at the center of the work that we're doing in collaboration from research design, to the actual work and excavation being done to whatever capacity people are able, and then also the dissemination process afterward. What sort of deliverables do community members need, want, And oftentimes it might not be academic journals and publications, which is what us as academics are really striving for in terms of the sort of needs and necessities of our jobs. Sometimes communities actually just want displays. Sometimes they want comic books to be able to actually show their children. Sometimes they want performance pieces. Sometimes they want installations. Sometimes they want photography. So really just being in conversation and being open to what is possible. Mm -hmm. In terms of really thinking about racial Diversity in archaeology. The academic conference that I go to every year is called the Society for Historical Archaeology. And it looks quite frankly a lot like Jackson Hole. Mm -hmm. Um, When we come up here, there are maybe, or when I go to SHA, there are maybe a handful of people of African descent who are at that conference, who attend that conference. And for me, it was really jarring. You know, my first time attending SHA, I want to say it was in 2000. nine or maybe ten at their annual conference in Austin, Texas. And I remember walking into that space, and even though I had a very powerful introduction to archaeology that really centered on racial politics at the University of Florida being confronted with the very reality of who I would be in conversation with, that was jarring. And one of the first things I did was really think about, okay, who can I be in community with in this space? And quite frankly, it really was, you know, me and a colleague of mine, Justin Donavant, walking up to people at SHA, it's like, hey, what work are you doing? What work are you doing? What work are you doing? Can we talk about our experiences here? But also in this way of acknowledging that, I'm 28 years old, I'm not the first black archaeologists, like the space that's been created for me, created for my supervisor and mentor, Maria Franklin, those are long-standing spaces, and really being able to not only talk about the experiences that we're having today, but also acknowledge and highlight the work that African-Americans and people of African descent have been doing in the field of archaeology as part of the work that SBA does as well. So I really wanted to just, in talking about Diving with a Purpose and talking about the work that SBA is doing on stage here, really just highlight how when we have diverse teams, when we have people coming from a variety of different social positionalities, so thinking not just racially, but class as well, geographically, really having diverse voices at that table allows us to really think creatively and differently about the past. And then asking those questions of the past, we're able to really think critically about this present moment and how we want to envision ourselves in the future.
0: Mm. This is so deep, so beautiful, your work. I'm amazed. And like I felt with Tiffany, I have so many more questions and, and so much more listening to do about both of your work. But I do want to give you the space to say anything that hasn't been said, anything that you feel is really coming up for you as being potent, whether that's something you're excited about, something that you want to critique, something that, a story that maybe you've had or somebody else's that you've been involved in. So the slate is blank for you.
3: Yeah. Something that I'm really excited about is really seeing and witnessing the reach that this short National Geographic doc has had in the world. My barber sent me like a text message yesterday that was like, I saw that Nat Geo on YouTube. And I was like, that's amazing. Like this is someone who ordinarily doesn't have access to this sort of information or knowledge. And he like reached out to me on Instagram, and was like, hey, I saw you doing this and it had an impact with him. So there's a way that like me coming from this, you know, neck deep in academia space that I'm really opening my mind up wide to what multi-platform storytelling really looks like, what it looks like to actually create content that could be disseminated to a wide variety of audiences in a number of different ways. And... You know, the short that we have with National Geographic is just one story. And it's just one of the many stories that Diving with a Purpose is doing. And it's just one of the many stories of scholars who are doing work who are associated with SBA. So it's been really exciting to really think about, hey, with like the network of amazing scholars doing dope work around the world, what sort of stories can we tell? What sort of threads can we weave together? How do we want to tell it? Who do, we, who do we want that voice to be? How do we want it to feel? What's the flesh of it? And really thinking about that has been an exciting process with Tiffany, who, like, her way of doing media in this world, her way of being in this world, it's boundary-shifting, it's breaking, it's, some, it's creating something completely anew. And I think it's the perfect space to really think about how we can tell the story and the continuing stories of the African diaspora.
0: The conservation focus of this year's summit was Living Oceans, and I can't think of a better person to introduce this topic than Megan Bronson. Megan oversees all aspects of Wild Aid's marine protection work and is currently focused on expanding their program to strengthen the enforcement of hundreds of marine protected areas globally. Megan, as I was reading up for this interview, just seeing that you've been in this work for, what, 15 years now, Mm -hmm. fighting illegal fishing, poaching. The information that you must see on a daily basis must be horrifying Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And yeah, I I wonder how you deal with the grief and still stay really active.
2: So first off, you can't be in this field and not be an optimist. You have to be the kind of person that focuses on finding the best out of a situation. But even beyond that, my job is to support the rangers that Mm. are doing all Mm. the hard work Mm. that are out there just getting it done Mm -hmm. and (laughs) while there's often steps up and you know Mm. setbacks with that process you're there for them Mm. and and if they're Mm -hmm. feeling down your your job is to Mm -hmm. is to lift them up Mm -hmm. right so it you do it because you have to, yeah, um, and there is I mean I think there is reason yeah, yeah, yeah. i have all I always have all these stories yeah. of hope you know of successes from the people on the ground as well, so yeah. I just fall back on that of like okay, so it's a setback, but we have achieved this, this, yeah. this so. well,
0: and I think mm-hmm. too, when you're in service to something other than yourself, whether that's rangers, whether that's a forest salmon, mm-hmm. a people, there is a type of strength that comes when it's not all about you, exactly. and it's not all about your grief and your needs and yep. your desires. Yep. You are working for them, advice. and and I do think that really is supportive when we're dealing with the sometimes unsurmountable shock and awe and horror of what's happening. And and so when you're telling me about the setbacks, and mm-hmm. you know you you'd mentioned just the setbacks and some of the successes, yeah. and supporting these rangers, yeah. is there any stories that maybe either kind of go over all of those themes or a couple stories that touch
2: on a few of them? Yeah, sure. So recently, like on a positive note, well, it's a positive and negative, right? When you find mm-hmm. when you find a case of illegal fishing or poaching, the goal is for there not
3: to <laughs> illegal <laughs>
2: fishing or poaching, mm-hmm. right, so it's it's a double-edged sword, but that does mean that the system's working, mm-hmm. and you need to be able to do that to build mm-hmm. a sustainable system. In Ecuador recently, they there was a partnership and with the park and the Navy, and mm. they did everything right in terms of how they were monitoring their waters. Where was and this? This? Uh, this was in Ecuador, oh, just sorry, outside yes, of the okay. Galapagos National okay. Park, and they found a Peruvian shark hunting vessel and captured it. And Ecuador has been really so effective in recent years of bringing strong prosecution hmm. in these cases. So I'm very hopeful that not only will this vessel be seized, but there's also going to be, you know, potential jail time or, you know, appropriate consequences. Mm-hmm. Seizure of the vessel which often can have the bigger impacts mm-hmm. because that's when the owners start mm-hmm. hurting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a one very recent cause yeah. for hope for me. And there's, like, other stories when you talk about setbacks, where if you're talking about yeah. often political changes... Yeah. You know a reserve that was declared is suddenly mm-hmm. you know no longer reversing of flaws like thats that 's the usual yeah because usually when you build that strong partnership and engagement with the community on the ground i mean it 's their natural heritage that you are supporting the protection mm-hmm. of you see more sharks you see a healthy, robust ecosystem that allows wildlife and mm-hmm. people to thrive, and so you still have that core, but there 's going to be you 're going to see an upward trend with Stepbacks as you're going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So.
0: I want to talk to you about conservation and colonial conservation. And this is probably a question I'm going to ask a lot of mm-hmm. participants yeah. at Jackson Wild. A lot of the groups and communities that I work with, they have some pretty strong feelings about conservation and mm-hmm. being kicked off land. Look at what happened in Yosemite and You know, I think we need to look at that. I think we need to explain the history of conservation in the past Mm -hmm. and what conservation is doing now, because Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of groups, conservation has gotten a bad rap. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, because in some ways, we really are losing the last remnants of wild spaces, and I absolutely think places need to be protected. But I wonder, how can we protect places while building relationships with the first peoples of the land Mm more delicately, more mm-hmm. gracefully, mm-hmm. and with the folks who are living with that land, who are economically tied to the land mm-hmm. for much longer than the conservationists, for yeah. the most part, who come yeah. in and try to buy things up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a challenging question to sit with because I understand the need to protect places. And I also see that it's been done in ways that have been really harmful and created a lot of fissures between groups.
2: To me, it's very, very clear. So. I am an example of colonial past, mm-hmm. right? Who am I to go into the Galapagos, to go to Ecuador, to go to Gabon, and say, hey, you guys need to do X, Y, Z, yeah. and I'm here to tell you how to do it, yeah. right? That's disrespectful, and it's ineffective. What When you're engaging with these people, they must be not just educated, mm-hmm. but meaningfully included in the management of their own resources, their own natural heritage. Yeah. And depending on where you are in the world and what the status is of those people you're talking about, that's going to be very foreign to the people Mm -hmm. that you're talking to, like of including these people in that management framework. But that's a non-negotiable outcome for me.
0: So the last question I want to ask you again. I kind of mentioned it earlier, but how do we balance the issue between what is deemed illegal fishing mm-hmm. and legal fishing? Like, I mean, I, maybe Wild Aid is just like we don't work on that because we not one organization can work on it all. But I'm interested in trying to break that down a little bit because I think. <laughs> I feel like some fisher companies, they can pay for a permit and suddenly make it legal. Like, it's it's not, you know, it's it's funny to think, well, why does this company get to completely rape the oceans and it's legal? But then these mostly poor people can't do their illegal fishing. Because, like, and that's another thing, too. You know, you have these people over here that might be totally in, in poverty but they get like a little bit of clean water, but they're stealing yeah. the water. But then this corporation over here just pays a low permit and gets, gets able to pollute billions of gallons of yes. water and drill. But it's like, yeah. that's okay because that is deemed yeah. legal. Yeah. And these smaller cartels yeah. that are yeah. mostly oppressed and usually people of color, mm-hmm. like those are the criminals. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's like, who are we choosing who to place criminality on Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think fundamentally you need to look at what are your conservation goals? Mm. Right. And you have to look at the full suite of what's going on. It is one ocean. Fish have this pesky habit of not respecting borders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. you need to look at the full picture and fundamentally integrate into that. Yeah. Considerations of equity, considerations mm-hmm. of food security. What's your responsibility and wh- 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 whose benefit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. are you going to be aiming at?
0: Our next guest, Rodrigo Farias, grew up exploring and documenting much of the beautiful Chilean coastline and the surf scene in the last decade, filming, traveling, and working with environmental surfer Ramon Navarro. His mission is to communicate the sea culture that surrounds this sport, which has led him to be the director at Parley for the Oceans in Chile and raise awareness about the beauty and fragility of our oceans. Just to start off, I, I'd love to hear about where you're working within mm-hmm. Chile and what are some of the threats to the coastal ecosystems there and what are the ways that you see surfing as a culture being able to engage in conservation in a way maybe other groups are not able to? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, totally. Um, actually, Sylvia Earl said that divers and surfers are the more active users in the ocean now. And the surfing in Chile has grown a lot the last 10 years, even the, like the same uh, when I start working on surfing in Chile. So we feel like kind of responsible of the growth of the sport, but also the development of the industry. And that comes in the hand with the development of the real estate, for example. Um, we have been making surf films for 10, 12 years. And the last, even like the 70% of my career I have tried to make less surf films and more surf documentaries, and use the voice of surfing to really raise awareness about our ocean and show stories that need to be listened and and see about what's going on in our coastline. Actually, Chile has a really good economy now. More industries are getting into the country, but that means that the development is really without control, you know? you got from the north you got the mining mm-hmm. that is contaminating all the ocean you got thermoelectrics you got the megaports you got in the center south you got salmon industry that is starting to approach to the center of the coastline and we have a beautiful coastline that we need to protect you know i live in pichilemu which is like a central the chilean surf capital and we are in the last highway of pure ocean, without industries, without thermoelectric, without port. So we're trying to work and raise awareness to create a marine sanctuary area there. And it could be the last pristine place in the coastline. So we use surfing. I work a lot from the beginning with Ramon Navarro, who is our local environmental leader. He's a Patagonian ambassador. He's the best surfer in Chile. And he also has changed his career a long time ago to spread the message and his sport to the people that really needs to know, all the fans, all the people like like him surfing. We quit making films about how good I was for surfing. Ramon, a good surfer, or the perfect wave, or even a show and ego who is the best surfer in the moment? to show that the surf gets positive for something that is going in local community
0: mm-hmm. that's it I was reading how resource extraction projects can actually disrupt waves yeah. and I would love to hear more about mm-hmm. that how, how do these projects actually destroy the surf
4: mm-hmm. well um, I've been working since two years ago from Parlay for the oceans a big foundation worldwide because surf films and surf documentaries doesn't give a living you know but I, I, I've been working with Parley and I have the opportunity to organize more than 150 beach cleanups in two years. We are and being, beach
0: cleanups like trash? Like.
4: Yeah, we organize and we made a beach cleanup guide for the army. And we make cleanups with 40, 50, 100 volunteers each two weeks in Chile in 10 islands, 34 locations. Wow. We have been working with more than 3,000 volunteers in two years. What we, I've been traveling to mostly all of the cleanups and what I see is like each island, each location has a different type of pollution, a different contamination source, and that has a guilty. In the hundred percent of the cases, the guilty is the human, Mm -hmm. you know? So we have been working and traveling through all the coastline of Chile, surfing, with the mother home, with my, my friends, making the cleanups. And we, in each cleanup, we work with the local community and the local community tell us the biggest problem there. They say, okay, we know we're not cleaning a beach, we're gonna solve the problem with the plastic, you know? But when we grab something from the beach, we say, hey, okay, what's this? And we find a rope, for example. And that rope, we found a million of ropes. And that rope comes from the salmon farm that is in front of this island, small island in the middle of Chilean Patagonia. And the salmon industry has been there for 30 years, you know? And they know that the that rope is from them. They never take care of that. You know? What happened? If you contaminate a beach, that beach receives less tourism. You don't want to go to a beach that is completely contaminated, you know? And you start checking that, oh wow. What is going on? The industry is affecting all the Chilean coastline, you know? In other places, you got dumps, illegal dumps. You got, how do you say, these pipelines Mm -hmm. of the pulp mills, you know? That even they get direct to the wave and they destroy the wave. You can't surf in a contaminated area, in uncontaminated water. But they don't care. They don't care. They just put the industry, it has been the industry there for 30 years... And they got a, a pipeline in the middle of the ocean, the same as the mining in the north. The thing is, like, our coastline is so big that you can travel six hours through the desert, you know, and see maybe three thermoelectrics, but the rest of land is desert. So the people say, OK, one here it doesn't, doesn't right. bother a lot, you know? And the government has the same feeling. They give license and regulations each some meters. But in that way, they are contaminating waves, they are destroying towns, and they can't do the people that live in the coastal communities, that the people, the ones that were fishermen, because the fishing industry has destroyed the artisanal fisheries in Chile, the people that is from the coastal community works for that industries. So they can't say, hey, you're contaminating my backyard, because if they say that, they get fired. They can't bring food to the family, Mm. you know? So we, as we are like external agents, we can really say, hey man, you are doing bad to the local community.
0: Yeah.
4: And so it's hard, you know? It's really hard because we can even destroy an industry. I can put all my energy to destroy an industry. But if I quit that industry, maybe I'm taking 3,000 people without job. Mm -hmm. And if you see from the side of the surfing it's a really ego thing. Mm. Oh, just these kids, they want to surf in their way. We don't double think that yeah. that kind of stuff, you know, but it's important.
0: I was also grateful to sit down with the wonderful Caitlin Yarnell, Senior Vice President and Chief Storytelling Officer at the National Geographic Society, who is responsible for expanding the organization's impact through all forms of storytelling, including photography, journalism, film, and public experiences. There's so much strategy that goes into what you do, and I'm so appreciative of the expansiveness in which you understand the situations. And I agree that National Geographic does have this brand that feels trustworthy and safe to a lot of people. And that's something that's really interesting, to meet people where they're at, and at the same time, I think about the last couple of covers, like the the man with the rhino, putting mm-hmm. his head to the head of the rhino. And that image does feel like, in a way, it's taking a stand. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel completely like you're just hands off, like, oh, well, whatever's happening is happening. You know, I think that there's ways in which National Geographic nuances mm-hmm. potentially what you all at the organization want people to begin to be more engaged with. Totally. and And, you know, it's a fact. Mm-hmm. That
5: rhino was the last of his kind. You know, some of the most charismatic megafauna mm-hmm. go extinct right in front of us. Yeah. And you could say it's just a fact. It's the last one. We had a photojournalist who was there. She had a deep relationship with the keepers of this rhino who, you know, was a heartbreaking moment. Yeah. That's a fact. That happened and we documented it. But what you choose to put on the cover, you know, the, ed- the editor and the team that works on that course they're thinking about um, but you have to think about a lot of things right one what do you want to say with a cover but also what is gonna make people want to pick up the magazine and read it because there's a fine line you know there's a lot of scary things in the world and there's a lot of negativity yeah and so you have to balance the wonder and the worry and Mm -hmm. I think National Geographic has done that well right we take you places that you'd never go otherwise you meet people you meet animals that you wouldn't otherwise, but there's a worry, mm-hmm. but you have to balance that because at the end of the day, we're not competing against other <laughs> publishing houses or under other media companies. We're public, we're, we're competing for people's time. Yeah. Right. We only, I think our most precious resources are time and you're competing against, you know, every novel ever written, every movie ever made, you know, and every cat video on the internet and, and and people walking outside in the woods, you know, all of which are valuable. So how do you create content that is worthy of people's leisure time?
0: The wonder and the worry yeah. statement, I am going to remember that because <laughs> that's so beautiful. And I think a lot about the beauty and the terror. It's the same thing. It's that it's balancing, inspiring people and allowing them to feel safe and welcomed into a space of inspiration, but then at the same time being like, and this is the truth, and this is what's happening. And and I think about just the saturation of digital Mm -hmm. media these days and, like you're saying, negative news. I mean, you can't go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and not be bombarded with stories all over the world at this point that are extremely devastating. And I wonder, how does National Geographic and how does your work specifically deal with this oversaturation point what are some of the strategies that you see unfolding when you're thinking okay this story is really important and we want to get people's attention and why mm-hmm. you know is it that you want them to call their senator is it yeah. like I'm, I'm interested to understand when you're saying these people are valuable for what is there yeah. an end goal and then yeah just kind of also talking about people are exhausted mm-hmm. to an extent of I media am.
5: yeah we we all are and, I, and I, it's my job to mm-hmm. absorb and watch yeah. and read, and I'm tired. We borrowed some framing from a lot of other groups, but from the storytelling perspective, what I always say is, you know, we need people to understand, to care, and we need people to care to act. Mm-hmm. And you can't jump through, like, that scaring part of that, that sequence, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times what happens in the media that's hard is that we throw information at people so they'll understand, and then we expect them to act. Well, just knowing something's happening doesn't mean I'm going to change my behavior or doesn't mean I'm going to absorb it and and do anything different, right? But when you care about something, when you love something, I would do anything for, for the people I love. Mm-hmm. I would do things for the places I love. Um, so how do you get people to understand something enough so that then they can care about it so that then mm-hmm. they're going to do something to act and be that stop using straws, I think is the perfect example or donate or write a letter to their senator, and, and oftentimes we're not prescriptive. We just want you to care because we know if that you care enough, you will act. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and but what we have to do as a nonprofit is be there on the side to say, if you want to act, here are the ways. But I think in terms of my work specifically in funding storytellers and funding people who make the content, what I look at in them, because they're the ones doing the work, is do they understand what they're trying to do and do they understand their audience? Because kind of design school 101 is purpose and audience. And so what are you trying to do and who are you trying to reach? Because I think sometimes there's great intentions or great pieces of content, great stories that the audience was not considered. And that means that you end up with a film or a photo essay or, or a written piece that doesn't reach the right people, or doesn't ever see the light of day. Doesn't get distribution in the right way, and, and distribution does not necessarily mean mass global media. It can mean, if, if depending on you know what's the purpose, it can mean a, a podcast in a local
0: language mm-hmm. that highlights you know some issue in a very specific place. That's really interesting to think about the audience because when I was imagining a reach like National Geographic, you're reaching. You know, I don't millions. know. Millions. Okay, so you're reaching millions of people with these stories all over the world. And most of the stories, people can't do much about. Yep. Like, for instance, even the Amazon burning. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of zoom back and I think, okay, now all these people are riled up about the Amazon burning and they're frustrated and they want to do something. And they may be in Wyoming or California and literally have no ties to the Amazon, no understanding of the government, no understanding of the indigenous people, never been there, never will, but yet they don't even know what's happening in their backyard where they actually do have more agency. And so I I love hearing about how you fund stories that may literally go to one person Mm -hmm. or may go to a a small group of people that the public will never know that that film was even made. But because the purpose is to impact this specific audience, I think that's a really fascinating thing for people to understand, especially the work that y'all are doing is that this isn't always for everybody. But I do have that question around with the saturation point and with all of this global news, which I don't, I don't imagine that humans evolved to take in all of this all no. the time. Or to even understand the scale of it. I don't think right. we
5: actually understand. We understand it intellectually, but I don't think we understand no scale.
0: No, and how can we? No. How can we? And and I wonder this with even for the Wilds Media of I want to be able to share stories from all over the world and I don't want people to get so riled up about things that ultimately debilitate them because they can't really have an impact yeah. there but then where can they have an impact? Where are they going to have the most agency, connection, responsibility? So I guess I'm wondering how do you balance the global and the local in yeah. your storytelling?
5: So I'd say that You know, it really comes down to what do you want to do? What's the goal? Like I said before, and and sometimes groundswell is what you need. Mm -hmm. And sometimes impact measurement is one of the hardest things to do. And sometimes you can't measure back, like, what was the tipping point that caused global consciousness to change? National Geographic, you know, we're two companies. We have the nonprofit side that can be very specific targeted because our goal is, you know, to really invest in that local and change impact-driven but also stand for journalism. We're not an advocacy group in that sense. But then we have the other side, which is a media company and a massive media company that reaches, you know, hundreds of millions of people a day. And when we can get those two things synced up together, so we fund someone who creates some content that then gets amplified through our platforms globally, that's when you have power. But sometimes we might... Amplification does not have to be global it can be those tiny micro-examples I talked mm-hmm. about, but oftentimes it can be, you know, an Indian filmmaker makes something. It's not great for global, but it hits national broadcast in India. You can reach, like, 700 million people with one broadcast. So we, I try to talk people away from thinking about, like, global is king, mm-hmm. right? Because people are the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. We fundamentally believe that. People are different. What plays in one culture and what plays in one market does not necessarily play in another. Mm-hmm. And, and the cultural nuance there is important. You know, I was at a conference, I don't even remember where, in the last couple of years, and someone said to me, uh, well, he sat on stage, he said it, see, i reframed it. Like, he said to me, because that's <laughs> how much it resonated with me. He said, the opposite of complexity can often be seen as reductionism. And it shouldn't be. Like, the world is complex. And we all strive simplicity, and simplicity is okay. So, keeping the balance between—it's all right to make your life more simple, to make your thinking simple, grounded in a place of complexity, versus reductionism, mm-hmm. which is dangerous. Right. So, so I, I'm every time I hear someone use the word reductionism, I'm like, good, <laughs> good, because it's something that hit me there. Any other projects? I, I don't know. You know. I'm so fortunate to have traveled and been involved with incredible stories and close to incredible people and places, but one program I just love is a program we call PhotoCamp where we work with underprivileged youth around the world, 20 at a time, send our best photographers out with Mm. them, and in one week they learn the basics of photography, but more importantly they learn that their stories matter and that they have a voice that needs to be amplified. And that, to me, has been some of the most powerful work I've done. Mm-hmm. And while it doesn't go huge, big distribution, although we have had exhibits at you know, the Nobel Peace Center and the Kennedy Center of their work, it's knowing that you're reaching a young person at a pivotal point in their life and telling them that your story matters. What you see and what you hear and how you're able to express that is very important. So that, to me, has been some of the most powerful work I've done.
0: That's so beautiful. And I agree. So many times people need to feel acknowledged and valued mm-hmm. and to give opportunities like that to the youth and to say, you matter, your perspective matters. Mm-hmm. Imagine just the watering of their seed of creativity that yeah. gets to be amplified through their growing up. I mean, that's absolutely so beautiful. Last, but certainly not least, we hear from Faith Mozambique. Faith is an award-winning visual storyteller with a deep and abiding love for motion pictures, writing, and nature. After obtaining a Master's of Arts in the Visual Media Arts from Emerson College, she returned to her native Kenya, where she has crafted films including Underwater Treasures and Saltwater Survivors for the award-winning Giving Nature a Voice series.
6: So when I embarked on this project, I was just fascinated by the fact that you have trees that grow in salt water and survive. And there's a really cool organization in Kenya, I think the only one that supports environmental filmmaking. So I got a grant to do this production thinking it would be like the ins and outs of mangrove conservation. And it wasn't. It was literally a discovery. I went to the coast of Kenya, and the coast of Kenya is quite massive. You know, I don't know how many kilometers or mile, you know, square, whatever it is. Um, And I found this interesting uh, situation in coastal Kenya where, you know, you had the government and non-government organizations coming in and, you know, laying down the law, you can't cut down mangroves, which is great for the environment. But then that would leave the local communities out in the cold because, you know, for some of them they'd owned tracts of land with mangroves and the way they sent their kids to school, the way they made a living was through cutting them and selling them, you know, for building houses, because mangrove wood is really sturdy. So it was, you know, there was this gap where the local communities are incredibly angry at, you know, the government because there's been no effort of trying to understand the predicament that the local residents are in. And this documentary was awesome because it literally facilitated conversation between like all these different groups of people in such a way that they could, you know, hear each other out because efforts in the past had just ended in disaster because no one would mm. give anyone the time of day and there was another angle another issue that upset some of the residents because there are areas in Kenya where you're allowed to cut mangroves but in a controlled fashion and people from areas where they're not allowed to cut at all didn't understand like why are they allowed to cut you know mangroves and we're not I'm um, so it was a, a really simple explanation you know the the areas where they're allowed to cut they have you know acres and acres and acres of mangroves and areas where they're not allowed to cut it it would be incredibly unsustainable Mm -hmm. for them to cut so it was just it was just incredible discovery for me for you know everyone involved and educational but also a learning experience for me in the sense that I realized you know it's conservation is not a simple it's not a two-dimensional thing man it has so many dimensions and the challenge is always on us filmmakers, like how do we tell that story, do it justice without taking on an angle that's forcing an agenda?
0: Mm. Conservation is so complex, especially around economics. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating to look at the conservation projects around the world that are happening now, but have happened in the past couple hundred years. And so many times, conservation doesn't uplift everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a story that needs to be told more and understood and i don't know what the solution to that is and i'm interested to hear how you think that can be balanced because i see people coming in and they're really focusing on just environmental factors land whether that's trees the other more than human kin that are living in those places but the human dynamic is left out of the equation mm-hmm. and when people are struggling for economic stability And their resources of the land are what they use to put food on the table. It gets really tricky. Or when people are kicked out of their lands Mm -hmm. to make a park. you know That happened a lot here in the United States, Mm -hmm. so-called United States. Uh, There are stories about Yosemite and John Muir. And there's a lot of pain around conservation here. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear your angle on how you think in Kenya specifically... There could be a way where conservation was prioritized at the same time as the humans living in those areas and economic stability for them is there an answer to that
6: no, I think that 's a great question because that 's you know what we have to deal with as filmmakers and with with saltwater survivors it 's what I came across where you know you had these really good things for the environment where you know the, the laws that are meant to look after the environment, but then by neglecting the fact that there is a human factor to conservation and by neglecting that, you put a timestamp on whatever you're doing because if you're restricting mangrove cutting but completely neglecting the fact that there are people that rely on those mangroves, it's only going to be a matter of time. I mean, these guys are going to keep cutting, you know, whether it's in the dead of night, it will undermine all the efforts. What I've seen that's positive or moving in the right direction is... When the, the local residents are involved, because essentially it's their thing to run. You know, that's their area. And, you know, it doesn't matter how wealthy an organization is. They can't stay there forever. You know, they literally need to have the guys who are on the ground. Like, this. that's their area. What I've seen work is when they involve them and they kind of create alternative ways to... To make money. Like what? For instance, um, with the with the mangroves, there's another kind of tree that also has sturdy wood and that wouldn't be devastating to the environment if it's cut. So there are a few um, organizations that have come in and that have helped the local residents plant these trees. So now they have an alternative where they can grow these trees. It's okay to cut them. And you also have, they use the mangroves to create ecotourism. There's a place in, in coastal Kenya that has a mangrove boardwalk. So they've created this really cool boardwalk you know, through a mangrove channel. And tourists come in, they pay to go on. Um, they can also pay for canoe trips to go in, into the, the channel. And it's all community-run, led and everything. So all the money they're making through the ecotourism is getting channeled into conservation. So it's become... Their thing, and they're sending their kids to school and not just primary or secondary education. You know, these kids are going to university and the kids are coming back into the community and working as opposed to what would happen before. Is you know, the kids, if they're lucky enough to get a scholarship to go, they go and they never come back. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's a, it has to go hand in hand, you know, the care for the community, otherwise literally what you're doing it's not sustainable maybe it might be great for two years and then Mm -hmm. it dies Mm -hmm. and then the mangroves also die Mm -hmm. but i'm all about celebrating kenya and africa i'm sick and tired of the narrative of Mm -hmm. you know hunger you know depression when we're such a rich continent
0: Mm -hmm. i want to hear more about the narrative that you feel like is coming from the outside world
6: Mm
0: -hmm. and i just want also to hear more about what you want the outside world to know about, Africa and Kenya specifically.
6: Mm -hmm. The narrative that's coming out is super negative and I think it's because we're not telling our own stories, you know, like the story about the Black Leopard, the reason the article ran with the fact that it hasn't been seen in a hundred years, it's because the person telling the story, it's true for them, they hadn't seen it in a hundred years. And so that's been the common theme that becomes so frustrating is because of who we tend to be as a people, and I hate speaking in generalities, but I feel like I can in this, we tend to step back and kind of be like, okay, you can you know, take the stage and tell our story. And it literally is time for us to step up and be like, we have incredible places. You know, we, we don't want to be always seen as a charity case. Mm-hmm. I don't think Africa needs any more aid because we're literally, we're such a wealthy continent. And I mean that, you know, in terms of resources, just things that you find in Africa. We're so wealthy, but there's a mindset where you find people kind of just like sitting back and just with their you know, hands outstretched, waiting for aid or waiting for someone else to tell the story. And I'm interested in doing my bit in giving people platform as much as I can to kind of tell their own stories of love and heartache and beauty and all those things. But also giving kids that courage to kind of be like, you can also step up and, you know, and tell your story. You, know, you don't have to wait, read your story mm-hmm. from the history books from a different angle. This is, this is yours to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from South London Hi-Fi, Bad Snacks, Chris Hogan, Josh Lippi, and the Overtimers. I'd like to thank our team, Aidan McCray, Andrew Stores, Cameron Stallones, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and
3: Melanie Younger.